the Republicans to wake up. Is the Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Uh, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. Welcome to a fresh edition of the Peter B. Collins Show, originating in San Francisco. Supported by great listeners like Don Sisney, Natalie Real out in Montana, and John DeVries. Like the pronouncer said, if you'd like to help, just go to PeterBCollins.com. Click on the tab that says You Can Help. Our voluntary subscriptions start as low as $5 a month, and I appreciate every nickel that people use to support us. In the second part of this podcast, Dar Jamail returns, the independent journalist who's covered Iraq since we invaded. And we're going to talk about the troubling new videos that have surfaced despite the Pentagon's best efforts to suppress them of two journalists who were shot dead by a helicopter gunship in Iraq in 2007. But first, we're going to take a look at an interesting maneuver by the Obama administration and the Democratic leadership to continue denial of Turkey's genocide against Armenia way back around 1918. Can't touch this. Can't touch this. Yes, acknowledging the Armenian genocide is a political hot potato. You just can't touch it. Stephen Zunas returns to our program, professor of politics and chair of Mideastern Studies at the University of San Francisco. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Hello. Oh, there we go. Uh, before we begin, I just want to comment, Stephen, that you spoke at the Sabil Conference uh, in uh, Marin County, which was a group, an international group of uh, people calling for justice for the Palestinians. And I just wanted to remark that I saw a new side of Stephen Zunas. Uh, you gave a rousing talk before a packed house in the church there, the Presbyterian Church in San Anselmo. And I just wanted to commend you, because uh, you have a future <laughs> as a rebel-rousing, uh, populist, uh, political activist. Well, I, 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 have, you know, I have my uh, you know, seminar of voice and, my, uh, and style, my classroom uh, style, my radio interview style, but I also do rallies. I also do uh, um, more politicized uh, gatherings, and that sort of brings out that side of me, I guess. Well, it was great to see, and uh, you certainly connected with me that day. And uh, we'll probably circle back to uh, some of the issues related to the Palestinians. But you've published a piece uh, uh, about the continuing denial of the Armenian genocide. And it comes as a bit of a surprise because uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, the uh, Foreign Relations Committee of the House uh, passed out another one of these resolutions. 
And these are resolutions that have no ultimate impact other than a statement of the sense of uh, the people who vote for it. Yet uh, we have seen the Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, uh, and the Obama White House uh, trying to suppress this action, despite the fact that as candidates, both Obama and Clinton supported this symbolic statement uh, of acknowledgement of the suffering of the Armenian people. What gives here? It is really disappointing, but unfortunately it's not new. Uh, going way back into the 70s, uh, there have been efforts by uh, Congress just to put on record uh, that a, a, a genocide did indeed take place. This is not unusual. I mean, the, you know, Congress is passing these um, resolutions all the time, um, you know, uh, commemorating uh, triumphs and tragedies of, of, of history, mm-hmm. and uh, and so there and, and and there's you know debate among historians, of course, that that it was, that it was a genocide by by, uh, by any definition of the term, and and yet uh, every time it happens, the president, uh, whether they be Republican or Democrat, uh, ends up stifling the initiative and never gets to a full vote uh, before the House or the Senate. Mm-hmm. And what's at work here? Can you explain for our listeners why Turkey is so sensitive about these issues that occurred 90 years ago? Well, the, the, uh, it is somewhat odd because the uh, Republic of Turkey it was not the government uh, that was responsible for the genocide. It was the Ottoman Empire, mm-hmm. uh, and, and uh, that it, um, and there are other countries, of course, uh, you know, that have to varying degrees of uh, uh, Acknowledge the atrocities in the past, particularly uh, if it was of a, a very different uh, political system or whatever. But for whatever reason, uh, the uh, the Turks are extremely uh, defensive about this. Uh, whole generations of Turks from across the political spectrum have been taught that, uh, yeah, there were some nasty things going on. There are massacres on on both sides, etc. But it was it was not a genocide. It was not a calculated um, uh, you know, policy to. Uh, wipe out a good chunk of the uh, Armenian population, despite uh, the evidence from documents of that time and, uh, you know, that and, and, and communications, and et cetera, that indeed it was genocide. And Turkey being a strategic ally of the United States, you know, there's a lot of defensiveness about uh, criticism, and we see this, of course, quite frequently with, with, with Israel. I mean, Congress uh, and, and uh, an overwhelming uh, majority, as well as the Bush administration, you know, was defended... Um, uh, Israel uh, for its uh, uh, for lesser war crimes, you know, like in, in Gaza uh, and in Lebanon two years earlier. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but, but uh, still, to um, uh, to fail to to acknowledge outright genocide, especially one that happened so many years ago, uh, does seem rather extreme in my view. And uh, you point out in your article you published at the Huffington Post, uh, March 11th is uh, the date showing that uh, you know we have criticized the Ahmadinejad government and him personally in Iran because he's a Holocaust denier and he's held conferences that are widely ridiculed uh, in the international community. And even in Iran itself. And yes, to, to promote that point of view. And it, it certainly uh, comes off as crackpot. Mm-hmm. Um, why is it that we embrace the crackpot notion that the Armenian genocide uh, cannot be acknowledged as if it did not occur. It is. It is ironic. I mean, and fortunately, there's not. They're not publicly denying that it took place. They just uh, refuse to acknowledge that it did. 
which I suppose is not quite as bad, but still, it, it is very, very uh, uh, disappointing. To so it's a state, up. it's a state of denial, oh, yeah, but yeah. it's not an actual denial. Yeah, yeah, right, right. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean the uh, and the, the irony, of course. I mean, it's always the stuff about oh, we don't want to hurt our relations with Turkey, but we've done so many things far more significant to hurt our relations with Turkey. Not the least of which was the invasion of of of, of Iraq. Uh, you know the uh, you know defense of um, uh, of Israeli uh, war crimes. The fact that the U.S. appears to have uh, supported an unsuccessful military coup in Turkey just a few years ago. Uh, the fact that the United States has armed um, uh, uh, militant Kurds in Iran and in Iraq, which have close ties with uh, Kurdish guerrillas and terrorists who have uh, attacked. Uh, Turks in Turkey. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are a whole number of things that the uh, have, have upset the uh, Turks far more than acknowledging the genocide would. After all, there are um, quite a few uh, countries in in Europe, as, as well as some individual uh, state legislatures here in the United States, which have formally acknowledged the genocide, and it doesn't seem to have had a negative effect on on their relations. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's curious because Turkey has engaged in very serious influence buying in Washington over the last 15 years. Uh, Three of the four uh, recent speakers of the House are now registered foreign lobbyists uh, for the nation of Turkey. That includes uh, Dick Gephardt, Dennis Hastert, and uh, Robert Livingston. And Newt Gingrich is the only one who, for some reason, um, hasn't aligned himself with Turkey. and there, uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar, but I've done quite a bit of work with Sibel Edmonds, who was fired from the FBI because she blew the whistle on events that she uh, witnessed as a translator or, or got information about. And she's gone more public in the past year about these issues. And what emerges is that uh, a guy named Mark Grossman, who was the number three at the State Department under Clinton and for a time under Bush, uh, was uh, caught uh, on on tapes uh, accepting cash bribes uh, from a Turkish contact, and there is a you know a, a whole suppressed story that I would call Turkey Gate mm-hmm. um, if the U.S. media took an interest in it, uh, and so there is a a real shadow here, a shadowy uh, sidebar story of Turkey's influence on U.S. leadership. And it appears to have successfully transitioned uh, from the Bush era to the Obama era. Yes, and, 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 and that's uh, so disappointing. It's, it's also, there's a small element of that even within academia that there of uh, uh, Turkish, uh, you know, American scholars of Turkey, uh, while while most uh, acknowledge historical reality, uh, quite a few um, have essentially been bought off. The most prominent uh, of whom is uh, Bernard Lewis who's a fellow at Washington's Institute for uh, uh, Turkish Studies. He's a retired uh, Princeton uh, professor. And uh, he, is, uh, he, unfortunately, is the uh, Middle Eastern scholar for whom more members of Congress cite than any other as influencing their understanding of the region. And Lewis is, is a, uh, a genocide denier. In fact, uh, so much so that uh, when he... Uh, uh, he was uh, indicted. He's, he's, he's under indictment in France for uh, an interview in Le Monde, where he um, um, he denied genocide took place. And in France, 
uh, denial of genocide, whether it be of the Jews or anybody else, uh, is is considered a crime. Mm-hmm. Well, and Stephen, one of the other uh, unusual episodes for me is that uh, during the Bush administration, uh, starting in, in 2005 or 2006, on my radio show, I conducted a number of interviews with a Republican named Bruce Fein, F-E-I-N. And he surfaced, uh, he wrote a book uh, calling for impeachment of Bush and Cheney. Uh, he surfaced as a, a constitutionalist who was appalled at the uh, power grab uh, by the executive branch under Bush. And then I was stunned to learn that he is the attorney for the Turkish American Defense Council. And uh, there is an array of, of these Turkish organizations, a, a lobby group that's very similar to in, in structure to the Israeli lobby, uh, APAC. And Fine has written op-ed pieces uh, questioning the Armenian genocide, by trying to uh, massage the numbers mm-hmm. and claim that, well, you know, maybe a couple of hundred thousand, but that doesn't really rise to the level of a genocide. Mm-hmm. And I, I just find it mind-boggling because I respect Bruce for his willingness as a Republican to, uh, uh, you know, put aside party loyalties and challenge uh, what I thought were the clear uh, excesses, abuses, and in some cases law-breaking of Bush, Cheney, and their appointees. Uh, yet he, uh, presumably because he's paid uh, by Turkey as their advocate, uh, is willing to sign his name to op-ed pieces that uh, do not make rational sense. It is disappointing, and, in, and on this very show, you and I have talked about some otherwise um, uh, you know, progressive uh, members of Congress and others who have uh, rationalized uh, and or denied for um, Israeli war crimes and and the like. It, 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 is, it is disappointing to uh, see people for uh, financial or ideological or, or other means to, uh, to so thoroughly uh, compromise themselves like that. It, and, you know, just, and, and I think just as uh, you know, there, you know, people uh, are sensitive, as they should be to a degree, of uh, criticisms of Israel, given that there really, there really is anti-Semitism out there, um, and, and, you don't, you, and, and, and justifiably criticizing uh, Israeli war crimes, you don't want to inadvertently... Um, uh, support uh, anti-Semites, that kind of thing. I think in a mm-hmm. similar way, um, you know, because of a lot of um, uh, anti-Muslim uh, sentiment, a lot of the criti- all of the criticism of, of Turkey, particularly trying to join the EU and that kind of thing, is, is based on a lot of bigotry. You know, I, I, I can see how, how some people may be, uh, you know, defensive and 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 uh, and go to the extreme. Yet, still, there there's no denying of the historical uh, record. I mean, the. Uh, the, uh, Henry Morgenthau, who was the U.S. ambassador to the Ottoman Empire during that uh, you know, period, you know, he was he was quite clear that it was it was um, it, w- it was genocide. Um, you know, the, um, he referred to it as a death warrant to a whole race. Um, I, I can't think of a better better definition <laughs> actually. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that uh, they were they were estimated two million Armenians were forcibly removed from their homes between 1915 and 1918. Uh, which have been part of their nation for more than 2,500 years, and uh, at least three quarters of them died uh, as a result of execution, starvation, and interrelated reasons, uh, you know, directly related uh, to uh, this, uh, um, you know, to uh, the, a decision from the very top of the, of the Turkish Empire. That, again, there is no question of the historical uh, reality here. So, again, uh, I've, I've long argued that uh, no matter how politically inconvenient something might be. 
uh, you can't. You should, it gives you no right to deny the fact, whatever your politics. Well, and uh, you and I are both uh, pretty familiar with a woman named Nancy Pelosi, who is now the Speaker of the House. And this is now the second time that she has been a party to blocking uh, the full consideration or consideration by the full House of a, a committee uh, passed resolution like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, she did so in 2007, and she intervened again this year. And uh, it's not so long ago that uh, Nancy Pelosi was a thorn in the side of the Clinton administration because every year she would oppose the renewal of most favored nation status for China over its treatment of the democracy activists, uh, culminating in the uh, Tiananmen Square incident in, uh, I believe, 1989. And uh, so to see her, who really, uh, you know, made her her chops, uh, built her her reputation as a progressive member of Congress on uh, this demand for human rights for the people in China. Uh, It is remarkable to see her put aside an issue like this um, that, as we pointed out, is really purely symbolic. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, she apparently has been persuaded that the downside of it would be so severe that uh, she can't stand on principle. She has to act... uh, in a power politics uh, calculating way, and, and in her case, uh, she is um, she knows darn well it was genocide. She has acknowledged it was genocide. In fact, and she uh, was an uh, open supporter of the um, virtually identical bill uh, that um, came out of the uh, Foreign Relations uh, Committee uh, two years ago. She promised, despite uh, um, uh, Bush uh, administration objections that the resolution would come to a full vote uh, be before the House, but she uh, broke her promise and uh, and indeed uh, cowered to the uh, Bush administration's claim that would hurt our war on terrorism. I mean, it's interesting. Every every time it comes up, there is um there there's some excuse. I mean, it was um, um you know this year it was well there's been a rapprochement between the government of Armenia and Turkey, and we don't want to jeopardize that. Well, there's no indication that it would jeopardize it. Uh, you know, why, why a, a non-binding resolution of a third country would affect bilateral relations, particularly when the uh, Armenian government uh, uh, argued it wouldn't, wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't get in the way. Uh, two years before, it, it, the, the real reason appears to be that we want Turkish support for these strengthened um, uh, sanctions against uh, Iran. Uh, two years later, the excuse was we needed these Turkish bases to help in our counterinsurgency war uh, in Iraq. A few years before that, um, uh, uh, during Clinton, it was because we needed Turkish uh, bases to patrol the um, so-called no-fly zones and, and conduct bombing raids uh, in Iraq. And then prior to that, it was around those bases being um, important as, as part of the Cold War, uh, uh, Turkey being a NATO member and, and bordering the what was then the Soviet Union. So it always seems to be a bad time uh, to uh, acknowledge uh, historical reality from um, um, over 90 years ago, it seems. Well, and it's also interesting because at the moment there are some fairly uh, dramatic changes occurring in Turkey. The Erdogan government has brought up charges against a number of military leaders, and uh, I, I'm not expert on these issues, uh, Stephen, but as I look at it, this is a way of preventing the next uh, almost predictable coup by the military to depose a civilian government and uh, reestablish their control uh, over the country. 
And so it, it is interesting that I, I, I think things are changing, not all for the, the best, because Erdogan uh, does seem to be wanting to relax the strong secularism and uh, allow more public display of uh, Islamic uh, uh, culture and religion. Um, but the reigning in of the military, to me, is a very significant development. Uh, yes, it is. They, they have uh, played a major uh, role in, in politics, both in terms of the uh, three or four occasions where they have actually seized power and ruled by decree, but um, also in just the threat to do so as uh, you know, certainly um, constrained things. I, I remember when, um, in fact, uh, when, when the Turkish uh, government, uh, despite being offered $6 billion dollars, billion dollars in aid from the United States uh, in return, they refused to allow uh, U.S. Uh, bases in Turkey to be part of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Yeah. And Paul Wolfowitz, our Deputy Secretary of Defense, uh, came to Turkey and uh, in, in speaking at the graduating ceremony of their military academy uh, just a couple months uh, um, after the invasion, said, I, we, we are really disappointed that the uh, Turkish military did not rise to its uh, traditional uh, level of leadership during this crisis, <laughs> which um, you know many people interpreted as an endorsement of, of a of, of a coup. Yeah, and I rem- I'll never forget uh, when uh, Reagan uh, hosted this um, star-studded "Let Poland Be Poland" uh, event at the uh, Kennedy Center to um, uh, against the martial law uh, in, in in that in that country. Uh, among the honored guests that he introduced was the Turkish ambassador at a time when Turkey had a martial law regime that was uh, e- even worse, indeed far worse, than uh, that in Poland at the time. So we, 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 uh, the United States has, has, uh, has not had a history of, uh, of, uh, of supporting uh, uh, democracy in Turkey. Mm-hmm. And so is there any rational connection between the current suppression of this resolution about Armenian genocide and the efforts to further isolate Iran and prevent it from developing a nuclear weapon? I, I'm sure, sure it is related, because Turkey and Iran, despite uh, having uh, very different governments over the years, have, have had long historical ties going back centuries. And, uh, you know, both, um, have, yeah, you know, you know, both uh, you know share common concerns about Kurdish insurgency. Uh, they have been. They both have concerns about um, uh, as as the leading non-Arab uh, powers of the other region. Uh, you know, they, they they have traditionally been close. Uh, they uh, obviously uh, Iran doesn't trust Turkey with its uh, NATO uh, membership and and having you having know, having having uh, ties with Israel. And of course, the Turks uh, don't trust the. Um, the hardline extremism of the Iranian government. At the same time, they, they, they are among the countries, among a number of countries, actually, that are very skeptical that this, uh, this increased sanctions regime against uh, Iran is going to, uh, to work, or and indeed they fear, like many of us do, that it could, it could even be uh, counterproductive. And so uh, they're, they're, they'd be reluctant to uh, participate anyway. If it was part of a United Nations uh, 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 um, resolution, they'd feel somewhat obliged, but how much uh, they would um, allow their common border to be used for smuggling, how much they'd look the other way, you know, this kind of thing uh, is, is in question. So uh, this, you know, this may be a part of an effort to, uh, to try to maximize uh, a reluctant Turkey's cooperation. Well, it's interesting, too, Stephen. I was just uh, reading a piece in the Wall Street Journal this week 
that uh, put some numbers on the current sanctions imposed against Iran, and and they're trivial. I mean, I mean, the biggest amount is a billion and a half that is nominally frozen in Britain, but the individual account holders can get their money if they certify or somehow prove that they're not assisting uh, Iran in its procurement of of nuclear-related uh, hardware, and. And uh, then from there, it trickles down. Uh, there are some modest amounts, I mean, really modest amounts of in the, in the low millions uh, being held by the Swiss and the French. And that's about it. Yeah, that's uh, about it for the international sanctions. U.S. sanctions and some indiv- individual sanctions of other countries are, are, are stricter. But um, yeah, the U.N. Uh, sanctions have generally been um, restricted to, to those sorts of financial things, as well as, of course, of, of banning the import of, of certain uh, technologies that could, uh, and raw materials that could facilitate uh, their, their procurement. The new sanctions would be much more, more general and economic, uh, would, would, um, could impact uh, uh, ordinary Iranians uh, to a higher degree. I actually uh, met with a leading dissident um, Iranian trade unionist who says that, uh, you know, that, that there, there may be a time and place for international sanctions, that, that he and other pro-democracy activists may at some point ask for stricter uh, international sanctions against Iran, but to have them right now would be very bad timing because the country, for its own uh, reasons, uh, mostly uh, the screwed-up uh, economic uh, leadership of the current government, is on the verge of, a, of a handing down some pretty strict austerity uh, measures uh, and uh, could and, and likely be massive, uh, you know, layoffs, end of subsidies of a lot of uh, basic um, uh, 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 food and uh, fuel and, and other materials that he hopes will inspire much greater resistance to the regime, especially by the poor and working class. But he says if we end up imposing sanctions now, Ahmadinejad is going to use that as the excuse for economic hard times that are going to come down anyway. And mm-hmm. it could really hurt uh, what uh, this trade union activist believes is uh, an incipient um, um, uh, growth and, and widening of the pro-democracy movement. Well, you just have to look at Cuba mm-hmm. to see how one can, uh, you know, one nation that is blockaded or isolated can turn that into uh, a very sustaining force and after all, uh, Castro has survived 10 U.S. presidents with various efforts to uh, punish him, isolate him, kill him. Uh, and he's still standing strong with Uncle Sam as the boogeyman that has kept him in power. Exactly. That, that in, in, in a lot of ways, uh, I mean, there are certain situations where economic sanctions are appropriate. Uh, if they, for example, I think in South Africa, where it was the white South African minority uh, and the elites that... Uh, benefited uh, far, far more than, than most South Africans in terms of the uh, economic relationship with the West. I can see situations where economic sanctions can, can be appropriate, but uh, most of the time, not all the time, most of the time they do end up uh, backfiring. They, are, 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 they end up strengthening the hand of the regime, and they seem to be imposed almost more out of, as an act of catharsis <laughs> and frustration uh, by the uh, foreign governments uh, than they do out of any rational political calculation. Mm-hmm. Stephen Zunis, uh, as we're speaking here, it's April 6th. Uh, the president is about to leave for Prague in the Czech, Czech Republic, where he will meet with uh, President Medvedev of Russia to sign a new START treaty. 
And uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on this. Uh, first of all, uh, do you see this overall as a positive development, or is the agreement uh, riddled with loopholes in a way as to be mostly a public relations stunt? Yes. <laughs> uh, no. Yeah, there, there, there are definite uh, uh, elements of, of both. It is, it is certainly uh, a positive just to reduce the total numbers of, of nuclear weapons. I mean, that does have a very real and, and tangible impact in, in, in terms of uh, reducing the um, uh, risk of, of, of a nuclear confrontation. Uh, it, you know, they, it, it's long overdue, in fact. Um, I mean, this is something that, 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 that should have been done you know, quite a few uh, years earlier. Unfortunately, this is in the context of um, some other policies uh, that that he has uh, basically, uh, for example, Obama has refused to uh, include either in this treaty or or, or as a matter of policy, uh, the uh, no first use policy, uh, which is um, something that arms control advocates have have advocated for for many, many years, uh, despite um, what people learn in in their intro international relations classes that nuclear weapons are, are for uh, deterrence. Uh, the fact is the United States has, has for years um, had as a military option the use of nuclear, uh, be, to be the first country to use a nuclear weapons. The, the original mm-hmm. scenario was if the uh, conventional armies of the Warsaw Pact, which were then seen as superior, uh, were marching across the plains of Europe to have a tactical nuclear weapons uh, as, as a deterrent, that, that we would be the first to actually use the nuclear weapons and uh, if NATO forces ended up getting getting overrun. But since the Cold War, uh, there's been very open talk of using uh, you know, nuclear weapons uh, against non-nuclear states, um, uh, such as Iran, uh, which would be it's a violation of the Non-Proliferation Treaty and quite a few other things. And yet uh, we still have... And, 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 uh, but even though uh, uh, Obama and uh, his top people have uh, not been as cavalier in hinting at such threats, uh, he has quite been he has been clear in uh, in the refusal to renounce the uh, uh, no first uh, uh, renounce the uh, this um, uh, or I should say to to embrace a no first use doctrine, mm-hmm. therefore uh, leaving open that possibility, therefore making it very hard I think for Iran or any other country. Uh, to be to uh, not wonder why they might uh, need a, a nuclear deterrent. Now, I read today that Obama is uh, working on that language. He's not renouncing a first strike overall, but it appears that he's narrowing the circumstances. Um, is that your reading of it? Yes. Yeah. We're we're, we're um, basically he's 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 he's, he's officially for swearing the use of of um, of, of um, nuclear weapons against non-nuclear countries with a caveat that countries must be in compliance with their non-proliferation obligations under international treaties. Um, and given that uh, Iran is currently violating a certain, uh, a particular um, codicil of, a, uh, of, of the International Atomic Energy Agency, that would put Iran uh, on the potential target list. So is Russia... Um, actually going to reduce its stockpile of weapons? Do you have confidence that this will shrink, at least, the portfolio of each uh, nuclear nation of the superpowers? Yes, that, that, that's pretty clear. Uh, and, and it's going to be an, an issue that uh, Obama has taken much more seriously than the, uh, the Bush administration. Uh, there's going to be you know, careful monitoring of the uh, dismantling 
of these weapons. Uh, the, uh, among uh, people who are serious about arms control, one of the big concerns has been so-called loose nukes, you know, that uh, in, in some remote area of Kazakhstan or wherever the uh, Soviets may still have a, have a nuclear stockpile, uh, you know, that, that, some, that, that, that some bombs and, or, or, or nuclear material could end up uh, in the wrong hands. But uh, the, there's going to be pretty strict oversight uh, of this policy, both for safety reasons, uh, but also uh, to, to, uh, to make sure that the uh, material actually is indeed unusable and will not get in the hands of terrorists or other rogue elements. Mm-hmm. And what about the missile defense aspect of this? We understand that uh, there was a last-minute phone call between Obama and Medvedev uh, regarding this, and it appears that uh, you know Russia fears not so much the missile defense itself, but the U.S. having forward bases in places like uh, uh, Poland, where we might actually secretly stash nuclear weapons for an assault on Russia. Um. But there actually is some concern about uh, um, uh, uh, these, these uh, so-called um, you know, nuclear defense options uh, as well. For one thing, they uh, violate the SALT-1 treaty, which was the, uh, really the foundation of arms control in the first place. And the reason that's important is that if you remember, think back to the Reagan era, they were if the five-year defense guidance plan and all that, for which uh, Wolfowitz actually was, uh, uh, speaking of whom, was, was a, a major architect, quite openly talked about uh, the uh, uh, first strike against the Soviet Union, part of the so-called nuclear utilization uh, theory, or NUTS, as opposed to MAD, uh, Mutually Assured Destruction. Uh-huh. But in, in NUTS, uh, we were having these first strike of weapons. You may remember the cruise and Pershing missiles we had in Europe that mm-hmm. were very accurate, and, and the uh, new, new submarine launched uh, uh, you know, missiles, and the things that we were targeting Soviet missiles in their silos. And uh, the the idea is that if we could, uh, you know, wipe out you know 80 percent or so of their um, uh, missiles before they're even launched, the ones that we we wouldn't get, we could shoot down through uh, the the our satellites and other uh, anti-missile things through the Strategic Defense Initiative. Mm-hmm. So, or, or what we call Star Wars. So what the the uh, Soviets were afraid about then, and what the Russians are now, that uh, these uh, this um, missile defense is in fact not. Uh, simply to uh, protect uh, Europe or the United States from Iran or some other uh, rogue state, you know, launching uh, one or two missiles, but in fact could be the basis of a uh, some future uh, president uh, uh, developing a first strike uh, option against the uh, Soviet Union, which would um, um, make their uh, their retaliatory uh, capability impotent. Mm-hmm. And what do you make of this, I believe it's a 46-nation summit, a conference, that uh, will be held in the coming week in Washington uh, around nuclear issues? Well, this is a very significant, and I mean, I, I, they're, they're, it's ironic it's gotten virtually uh, no uh, attention uh, in, the, in the mainstream media. This is one of the most significant... Uh, hey, come on, Tiger Woods is playing golf again. <laughs> but, I mean, I, I think, to, to Obama's credit, he... Um, he recognizes that uh, um, we can't just dictate uh, the, the terms uh, on, on nuclear issues. We can't say it's okay for us and our allies to have, uh, have nuclear weapons, and, and then we can single out uh, countries like, like Iran. I mean, he's, in a sense, that, and in a sense, that is what he's doing. But he is, but he's also recognizing that uh, he's going to need to um, needs, needs to be international uh, cooperation. Other countries have to be 
involved in looking at these broader issues. Uh, indeed, it's been the non-nuclear uh, states which have largely taken the lead that, in the sense that we now have nuclear weapons-free zones in all of Africa, Latin America, South Pacific, Antarctica, Southeast Asia, um, Central Asia, uh, in, in fact, you know, the Middle East and South Asia, along with Europe and the United States, and, and then, and of course, you know, China and Korea, are the only parts of the world where uh, there are nuclear weapons. So the, the vast majority of the, of the world is now free of them, uh, and free, of, uh, uh, you know, at least legally speaking, of anybody bringing nuclear weapons that, uh, you know, in, into those areas. And so this is initiative very much of the uh, minor powers, the, the developing countries and, and the like, and more and more are, are saying that we, we cannot uh, uh, allow this, um, uh, this, this uh, you know, the, the, the nuclear monopoly to, to continue. The Non-Proliferation Treaty was very clear that in return for other countries not developing um, uh, nuclear weapons, the existing nuclear powers, at, at that point there were five uh, the, the, who signed the treaty, uh, said that they would make a, a good faith effort for total uh, nuclear disarmament. So if you want to find uh, countries that are in material breach of the NPT, uh, don't, uh, don't, don't look at Iran, look at the United States, Russia, Britain, France, and China. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Very interesting. Anything you'd like to add, Stephen? Well, no, that, I think it's, uh, that, you know, the nuclear question has, um, clearly isn't getting the kind of attention it did at the time of, of the Cold War. Uh, but it, it's still very, very important. Uh, there's a, uh, there, I would encourage listeners to um, check out the website of Peace Action, mm-hmm. uh, peaceaction.org. They are the, the group that are, were, are, is, is the um, descendant of the merger between the Committee for a Sane Nuclear Policy, started way back in the 1950s, and the uh, Nuclear Freeze Campaign uh, from, the, from the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And they do a lot of issues around Afghanistan, Iraq, quite a few other things, but they still have a very active program in, in support for nuclear disarmament. And, and, and groups like that that are, are recognizing this is still an issue are, are, are very important and deserve our support. Stephen Zunas, Professor of Politics and Chair of the Mideastern Studies Department at the University of San Francisco. Great to talk with you, Stephen. Likewise. And the Peter B. Collins Show continues, sponsored by the Organic Wine Company. Now that you're eating organic, it's time to drink organic. Try the fine, earth-friendly wines imported by the Organic Wine Company since 1980. Click on the link on my homepage at peterbcollins.com. Death and destruction continues in Iraq. And while the U.S. military presence is reportedly declining, and troop strength is below 100,000 now for the first time in about mm, six years, the carnage continues, and reports continue to surface of U.S. misdeeds. Dar Jamal has been our go-to guy about Iraq for many years now. He published Beyond the Green Zone, 
Dispatches from an Unembedded Journalist in Occupied Iraq a few years ago. His more recent book is The Will to Resist, Soldiers Who Refuse to Fight in Iraq and Afghanistan. You can read his dispatches at dar.org. <laughs> right. Dar.org. It's been a while. And Dar is D-A-H-R. Dar, welcome back to our program. Thanks, Peter. Always good to be with you. Well, there's been a lot going on, and uh, because of the healthcare battle in the United States and many other factors, uh, Iraq is very much on the back burner. Uh, I want to talk with you a little bit about their recent election and uh, some of the developments that that produced. But uh, just in the last uh, day or two, uh, a murky organization called WikiLeaks, and they're only murky because uh, they try to obscure their identity because the Pentagon has been trying very hard to uh, take their website down and to discredit the work they do. But WikiLeaks.org is uh, up today as we're speaking, and uh, they released a video on April 5th about an incident that occurred in the New Baghdad area of Baghdad on the 12th of July in 2007. And this is a 17-and-a-half-minute video that uh, shows these two American uh, Apache helicopter gunships zeroing in on people who are really just uh, uh, not really congregating. They're, I guess, kind of loitering, hanging out in this one area. And we hear the radio dialogue, and we'll get to that part in just a moment. But first, what do you know about WikiLeaks? And uh, as I've reviewed their work, uh, they have published some interesting documents uh, and released some information. Uh, What do you know about them, Dar? Well, not that much, Peter, just that they have been around for a bit, for a few years now, and that they are a very valuable tool uh, that's available for insiders or people uh, like in this particular instance somebody in the military decided hey i have access to this thing and this is uh, information that the public ought to know clearly this is stuff the government does not want people to know about and now here is a channel where it can be made available and this as far as i know of anything that's ever been posted on this website uh, this has gotten enormous international attention, even mainstream media attention in the United States, which is about enough to give me a heart attack uh, to, to see this reported in the New York Times and even on MSNBC and some of the other big, bigger stations. So it's really a good thing that WikiLeaks exists uh, as a platform so that it, uh, information like this can be made available to the broader public. And it's fair to say that if uh, two Reuters journalists, reporters, had not been uh, killed in this incident... Uh, that it would have been written off as uh, collateral damage, uh, just some Iraqis who got killed. And I'm not trying to trivialize that in my own uh, words, but that's the attitude uh, that I think would be widely shared. I think that's exactly right. You know, when we bring journalists into the fold, uh, that uh, certainly adds another layer as to why whoever leaked this felt that it was extra important. But, you know, as, as, as damning as this video is and as... Uh, vile as it is, you can. I watched it yesterday. You can uh, just go online and watch them. These uh, and listen to the casual conversation in the helicopter. These people who are basically getting ready to just murder a bunch of Iraqis in cold blood, uh, and yet uh, we probably wouldn't have heard about it at all. It probably would not have been leaked had uh, two of these men not been Reuters journalists. And uh, as you just mentioned, the audio chatter, the, the video includes 
uh, what appears to be a fixed camera on one of these choppers. And then you hear the back and forth between the chopper crew and uh, somebody who is their uh, superior, uh, who's at another location. And uh, let me just pick up here. I'm going to play part of the audio. And again, WikiLeaks, W-I-K-I-L-E-A-K-S dot org, is where you can see this for yourself. So let me let me back up here just a little bit. Um, they claim we had a guy shooting, and then they say that. Uh, and in in this scene that I'm looking at right now, one of the Reuters uh, journalists, Namir, is walking with a camera uh, toward the helicopter. And the the one thing that, uh, as I watched this star, I kept thinking, well, you know, you can hear a helicopter. Uh, when these things are hovering above you, uh, it, it dominates the environment. Uh, you can't help but notice them. Uh, but these people are going about their business, and this uh, Reuters worker, uh, Namir, is carrying a camera, and this guy just flatly declares that it's an AK-47. Now, he's not brandishing this. Uh, he's carrying the camera with the lens uh, apparently you know, facing down, uh, because he's not shooting as he walks. He's not shooting video. And so uh, we hear this uh, uh, radio chatter as they start talking about about a half dozen people. A total of 12 were killed, uh, plus two children. So they're describing individuals with weapons. Okay, so Dar, now we went from two people who are identified in the video with weapons to a commentary from an unnamed person here saying, well, we have five to six individuals with AK-47s. So they're fabricating uh, from the beginning here as if they know they're creating a record of this and they want to be able to justify it later. Well, I, I think that's exactly what's going on, and I think this is ultimately why this particular video uh, that's going around is so damning, because it's so blatant. Anyone, you don't need any kind of war journalism experience or military experience to look at this video and look very clearly at the people that they're claiming have weapons. And then a little bit later in the video, uh, one of them goes on to claim that they see someone with an RPG, a rocket-propelled grenade launcher, which is huge. They're, I mean, they're big. These, these are five, six-foot-long tubes that fire rockets, and they're mm -hmm. literally, the camera's on a guy, and they're saying, that guy has an RPG, and you can see this guy, he doesn't have anything. Uh, and, and, and then claiming that these individuals have AK-47s, again, as, as these guys being soldiers themselves know that uh, simply a guy with a strap uh, a camera strap over his shoulder. If that were an AK-47, you would see the barrel either pointing up over his shoulder or down below his waist. Uh, mm -hmm. Anyone that understands uh, weapons and has seen these over in Iraq, AK-47s, I've seen plenty of them myself, understands that you would very easily be able to tell the difference between uh, a camera, even one with a long lens, since this guy's a Reuters photographer, you, you would easily be able to tell the difference and, and differentiate between a camera over someone's shoulder or an AK-47 machine gun. Uh, so it's very clear. And then, as you point out, that they go on and take uh, the numbers that these helicopter pilots give 
narrative of, oh, we see two guys with AK-47s, and then someone else repeats uh, at a base or wherever it is they're talking to, to this headquarters, oh, they are seeing five to six guys with guns. I mean, clearly they are making a video log to justify what they're about to do before they actually do it. And uh, the other thing I want to point out, and I hope people will watch this video uh, individually so you can get <clears throat> the same impression, not just rely on mine, but uh, the, these people are, are walking not aimlessly, but they're, they're hardly in any kind of a formation, uh, would, which you would describe as, uh, you know, militaristic or even, uh, you know, people who are going to burgle uh, a, a building in this area. Uh, the two Reuters people are walking with some um, intention, uh, purposeful. They're going from one place to another with these cameras. The others uh, appear to be just kind of uh, wandering around and watching them, but they're not, uh, you know, visibly in any kind of threatening activity. Right, and another thing that you pointed out in, in addition to that, uh, but you, you mentioned this earlier, Peter, that I think is an important point, is that had these men actually been insurgents, uh, you could hear the helicopter. These are helicopters are extremely loud. I think anybody knows that, and particularly Apache helicopters, uh, as are used in in Iraq, uh, are they're very very loud. So even if this helicopter is very far away, which let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say that they are, and they're using quite sophisticated lenses on their cameras, and they can see these guys from afar, even if they're a mile away. Uh, still, you can easily hear that. So these men are well aware of these helicopters, and they're not trying to hide. Uh, if these really were insurgents walking around with AK-47s and, and an RPG, they would absolutely not be walking down casually, uh, walking down the middle of a road with their weapons while they can hear a helicopter. Yeah. And every, anyone in Iraq knows that you know these helicopters, uh, they're, they're, they go overhead all the time, and, uh, you know, most of us that work over there, you don't run and hide every time you see a helicopter. I mean, if you, if you did, if you were afraid of being shot by every helicopter that went overhead, uh, you'd be running for your life and diving into buildings five, ten times a day if you were out and about in Baghdad at, at a minimum. So it's very, very clear these guys, uh, you know, and it, it's funny. I mean, I, I, I think that the fact that we have to state the obvious repeatedly with this uh, when really it's the military that needs to be uh, really uh, having an, an independent investigation as to how and why this happened and how could these pilots so casually be going about killing people in a way that clearly this looks like something that has, is done on a regular basis. And, you know, those of us like myself who have reported from Iraq know uh, this type of just rampant, random killing, whether it be from helicopter pilots or from soldiers at checkpoints or soldiers riding around in patrols, this is an everyday occurrence in Baghdad. So request permission to engage. We have no personnel east of our position, so you are free to engage over. So you're free to engage. And then uh, it takes a minute here because they've kind of gotten behind a building. And again, we don't know the distance from the chopper to these people who became targets. Uh, the camera is very stable. Uh, it's remarkable that this video is not shaking from the vibration of the helicopter. So I, I want to replay this part because this is where the RPG comes up. Uh, 
Now I rewound here, and we're back to the section where I started. That line was fucking prick. So here's where they up the ante on the number of weapons. They identify two people with weapons, and then it goes up to five or six. There you go. Roger that. Uh, we have no personnel east of our position, so uh, you are free to engage over. All right, we'll be engaging. Roger, go ahead. I'm gonna, I can't get them now because they're behind that building. Uh, hey, but that's all that. Call we got an RPG. All right, we got a guy with an RPG. I'm on a fire. So what you hear there is uh, chatter back and forth from what appears to be the pilot and the gunner. And the gunner wanted to shoot, and the pilot said, no, uh, let's come around the building. Now there is a second team using the same channel, so there's a little confusion. Once you get on, it's open up. I see your element. You got about four Humvees out along this. That's a separate event. So as soon as you hear the firing, you see people scramble, you see people hit. Uh, they follow one of the journalists as he attempts to run. Bushmaster 2-6, Bushmaster 2-6, we need to move time now. All right, we just engaged all eight individuals. Now we have two Americans, we're still firing. I got him. And here's the sequence where Saeed, one of the journalists, is trying to escape. And that, that's the, uh, pretty much the action footage of this sequence. And, uh, Dar, we've got to assume that there are thousands of videotapes like this, some of which could be even more incriminating. Well, a absolutely, Peter. There's no question about it. And, and you know, I think the one particularly unique uh, aspect of this one in particular is simply that uh, we're getting to see it. Uh, that this kind of thing uh, is, is we're just, it, we just don't see them. I mean, so many of the soldiers that I interviewed for my more recent book uh, told me that it was incidents not necessarily like this involving helicopters, but incidents of rampant, random, heartless killing of, of civilians for no cause whatsoever that, uh, that caused them to start to wake up and turn against uh, their being, being a willing participant in the occupation. Uh, one of the fellows uh, that I spoke with who actually testified at the Winter Soldier hearings, but not about this particular event, uh, one individual had told me that uh, an American soldier who served in Iraq 2004-2005 said that he personally witnessed uh, literally a, an entire apartment complex. Uh, an, an airstrike was called in uh, by a C-130 with a, 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 a extremely high caliber uh, rapid-firing machine gun that can literally uh, just lay down enormous amounts of fire in a concentrated amount of time in a concentrated area and literally have one of these called in to basically take down an entire apartment building that was full of families, you know, laundry hanging over the balconies, drying, this kind of thing, uh, simply because there was one individual on top of that 
who had uh, fired a weapon, uh, a small caliber weapon, into a nearby uh, American base. And so they used that to justify taking out an entire apartment building rather than sending a patrol or sending uh, a small group of soldiers to investigate, that kind of thing. Uh, and, and I've heard stories like that repeatedly on down to stories like uh, another one I mentioned in my book, I can't, I don't have the soldier's name uh, on the top of my head, but talking about how uh, they had gone into an, an area after they had killed, uh, knowingly killed a bunch of Iraqi civilians. Um, bombs were used. Their strike, I believe, was called in. And literally there was a, an Iraqi's head laying on the ground in the aftermath of this American attack. And some of the soldiers started to play soccer with the head. Mm. And, and it's that type of disregard for life for humanity and for their own humanity that these occupations end up creating within the soldiers doing the occupying. Dar, over our Easter weekend, uh, we learned of an event where 25 uh, Sunnis were essentially executed uh, near Baghdad. And this, to me, is the unraveling of the so-called Bush surge where we paid uh, Sunnis, uh, we created these Sunni awakening councils, and we passed around money to uh, essentially have them man checkpoints and do other security uh, details, uh, and to pacify them, to keep them from shooting Americans. This occurred at the same time that we uh, allowed uh, uh, walls to go up that segregated Shiites from Sunnis in many of the residential areas of Baghdad. And so I wanted to get your comment on this because we are now touting the surge as a formula to be used in Afghanistan and in this highly publicized uh, uh, assault on uh, a town that's really just a village in a market town called uh, Marja. Uh, We're now passing out cash and trying to uh, give people jobs to keep them from joining the Taliban and to keep them from killing Americans. And uh, while it did appear to work in Iraq uh, for the short term, uh, are we seeing the end of the utility of uh, that approach? Well, that's exactly right, Peter, because it wasn't the so-called surge that brought uh, a big change in Iraq as far as lowering the number of attacks on American forces, but rather it was, excuse me, it was rather the creation of the awakening forces by the Bush administration where they basically paid off known resistance fighters and said, look, we're going to pay you guys to quit attacking us. And that's what they did. They started paying them $300 a month, and it was quite effective. And this started back in April 2006, a full seven months in front of the actual so-called surge. And that's precisely when we started to see a dramatic decrease in the number of attacks being launched against American forces. And yet now, uh, actually as far back as October a year ago, uh, when the U.S. decided, okay, we no longer officially are sponsoring the awakening forces, we're turning these over to the Iraqi government, who had, quote-unquote, promised to roll them into the security forces, which even to this day they still essentially haven't done with the vast majority of them. So, that what, in effect, what happened is the U.S. basically uh, hung these people, they, they hung these people out to dry. And so now we're looking at them being uh, almost daily targets of the government security apparatus that never really had an intention of, of, of bringing them into the fold. And so it was extremely disconcerting about this particular event that 
you mentioned is that many of these people killed were Awakening Force members. And in addition to that, we see Maliki now going out and targeting uh, some of the people who've been elected into positions of political power under his opponent's list, under Yedalawi's list. And so as a result, now we're seeing in addition to that, into this power vacuum in, in the fact that there's not a real government being formed because of the corruption and the dispute happening in the wake of the elections, we're seeing al-Qaeda in, in Iraq now start to take advantage of, of this and go out and start launching major spectacular attacks around Iraq in predominantly Sunni, or, or uh, I'm sorry, in predominantly Shia neighborhoods. And all of this happening in concert, and it's happening very quickly. I mean, we're just in the last three days, Peter, we're looking at numbers of, of dead in Iraq that we haven't seen uh, in a long, long time, aside from a few sporadic spasms of violence. We're looking at daily numbers now that are starting to climb back up to what we saw in 2006, 2007, which was the height of the sectarian bloodletting. And this uh, election process is fascinating because uh, it was a near deadlock. Uh, 91 uh, parliament members for Alawi, who was our first uh, hand-picked uh, installed leader there uh, in Iraq, who had passed CIA muster, and uh, 89 uh, parliamentary seats uh, con- uh, committed to uh, the incumbent uh, puppet uh, al-Maliki, and uh, two other characters uh, who are known to many Americans resurfaced. Uh, Chalabi, who was uh, the darling of the CIA and then the Rumsfeld Defense Department, uh, and really created a lot of the pretext for the invasion of Iraq. He's back in charge of the Election Commission, and he has been blackballing uh, a number of uh, people who actually did get elected uh, to Parliament in this election, uh, after the fact, uh, uh, removing them, claiming that they were not qualified. And then we have Muqtada al-Sadr, who uh, has been studying for his uh, Ayatollah degree in Iran, and uh, he resurfaced as a champion of democracy, saying that he was going to allow his members, uh, his followers, to vote, and he would then throw his weight behind either Maliki or Alawi, uh, based on the outcome of an election of the the uh, the, the the Sadr followers, they're the Badr Brigade, right? Uh, no, actually, the the Sadr, his armed wing, which is supposedly now uh, not in existence anymore, but it was the Mahdi Army. Mahdi the Badr Army. Brigade Sorry. was the armed wing of the uh, Supreme Council in Iraq, which is more well, at least up until relatively recently, were in line with with Maliki. Thank you. Yeah, I, I got those mixed up. So what's your comment about this uh, remarkable mess and uh, Sadr's embrace of democracy as a, as a resolution here? Well, Sadr has, you know, despite the, the West, uh, Western media's, or main, West, mainstream Western media's tendency to write him off as a radical firebrand, kind of lunatic, young, uh, shoot-from-the-hip uh, Shia cleric, he's actually very politically astute, and him stepping up now once again in the political prominence where he's in a position where he can actually be a kingmaker since this, this elections race has turned out to be so tight. Now, once again, he has a lot of power uh, and his followers, and we're seeing that right now. But another thing that's really interesting about this situation that people here need to understand how corrupt 
this is and how not democratic this so-called election is in Iraq, despite the, the mainstream media's attempt to whitewash it and present it as, oh, look, okay, it took a lot, of, a lot more time than we thought, but now we really do have democracy in Iraq. The reality is that we're looking at a completely corrupt, violent system. Because here's what happened. When Maliki, when it became clear to him that he wasn't going to win the plurality during the election, even before the final results were announced, he went into the Iraqi Supreme Court and had them pass uh, a measure that basically said, look, no, that, that we're not going to form the government based on who has the plurality in the national elections or who has the most, uh, uh, wins the most seats in parliament. Uh, rather, uh, we're, we're, we're going to delay the decision, and when the, when the parliament reconvenes in June, as in about two months from now, then who has the most seats at that time will get to form the new government. So that basically what happened is Maliki bought himself about two months to start targeting as many of Alawi's MPs as possible. And so that means already we see two of them have been, or two of Alawi's uh, ministers of parliament have, ministers of parliament have been arrested and, and are being held in custody. Uh, one of them uh, is, is completely missing at this point, and another one has gone into hiding. So already, just based on that, uh, Maliki now, by his own records, of course, would have the plurality. And, and this is what's so disconcerting, because we're seeing tit-for-tat killings, we're seeing threats going back and forth, and also before the election, Alawi also announced, look, uh, uh, the other side, uh, ergo Maliki, uh, we, need to, we need to be very public about this. We don't want them to be targeting our MPs. And we're starting to see that. And so this basically lays the groundwork where the awakening forces and, and current resistance members are, are saying, look, you know, we once again, uh, that there is no democracy. We have a U.S.-backed puppet that's being allowed to do whatever he damn well pleases uh, regarding the elections process. And so if we have no political representation, we're going to have no choice but to fight once again. And so far, just in these, these last week or so, unfortunately, we're starting to see that. And uh, most of us that are closely monitoring this situation are unfortunately expecting things to get uh, to continue to worsen over the coming weeks and particularly as june gets near now this is uh hopefully an amusing aside but the bush family called in jim baker back in 2000 to fix the messed up election in florida uh any any indication that jim baker is consulting the uh <laughs> maliki <laughs> government right now on how to win an election you lost already has peter yeah yeah <laughs> well it, it is very interesting and of course uh, the bottom line for me is will we see american troops continue to withdraw first of all um i'm always a little skeptical of these things star because the claim that we have uh, reduced our presence below a hundred thousand is encouraging but i haven't seen it substantiated uh, i haven't seen any photographs in the media of, uh, you know, soldiers coming home to the welcome embraces of their family members. And I haven't heard about any large troop movements of uh, uh, contingents being returned uh, from Iraq to the United States. So, first of all, are, are you able to independently confirm the roughly 98,000 number that uh, the Pentagon is currently using to uh, enumerate our presence in Iraq? 
We are definitely seeing indication that the number is below 100,000. Uh, there, there's basically hardly any American patrols being run anymore. Uh, the troops that are remaining in the country are largely being sequestered to these large mega bases, and we certainly are seeing movement of troops out of the country. Uh, we're not seeing uh, footage of folks coming home and being embraced by family members and such because a lot of these troops are being pulled out and being sent to either other stations overseas or into Afghanistan. That It's only a small percentage of them are actually getting to come back home. Here And plus, we're, we're not talking about a very large number overall. I mean, uh, when this drawdown started, we're talking about uh, more than uh, roughly 30, well, approximately 35,000 troops in right. more than a year's time. So we're not talking about large, large numbers of troops. And right now it has been held at approximately 98,000 for over a month's time. So we, we, you know, there hasn't been an official announcement that we have halted this. But for right now, that's where it stays. And, I, and, and we also did have some rhetoric about this by General Ray Odierno, the commander of U.S. forces in Iraq right now, uh, just before the March 7 election in, Baghdad, in, in Iraq, that uh, if violence uh, does escalate in the wake of the election, then we probably would be slowing down, if not stopping entirely the withdrawal. And right now we are seeing that violence, and we're not seeing a resumption of troops being pulled out of the country. But all of this, of course, is in the context of uh, the fact that the U.S. does plan to maintain at least five enduring bases in addition to the massive embassy that they have there and maintain a, what they're calling now a strike force uh, in Iraq uh, for, of, of approximately 50,000 troops uh, for the indefinite future. Now, they claim, though, and, and uh, let me just cite that uh, it's been about six weeks since I talked to Professor Juan Cole from the University of Michigan, and he was much more optimistic that we will meet uh, the August target to be down to 50,000 and that we will honor Bush's SOFA agreement with Maliki, the Status of Forces Agreement, that was uh, submitted to the Iraqi parliament for ratim- ratification, but not to the American legislature. Uh, at any rate, uh, our agreement is that uh, all U.S. troops are supposed to be leaving Iraq by the end of 2011. Uh, that's just uh, 19, 20 months away. Uh, do you think that'll actually happen, or do you think we'll find a reason to say, uh, just as you pointed out, that we have these enduring bases and uh, that, by golly, we're going to keep our troops there? Well, you know, Juan Cole and some of the other Iraqi analysts that have this mindset that, yes, the U.S. is actually going to adhere to these overtly stated conditions of the Status of Forces Agreement. Uh, you know, I, I would like to see the U.S. totally withdraw, but I think that that opinion doesn't take into account some of the liner notes of the Status of Forces Agreement. I don't have the document in front of me right now, but I did write a longer article about this for Truth Out. It was posted uh, about two, two and a half weeks ago, around the time of the anniversary of the Iraq invasion. And I really go into the specific articles of the Status of Forces Agreement and quote Phyllis Dennis with the Institute for Policy Studies in D.C., an expert on the Status of Forces Agreement, where she says, look, there is enough gray area here in this document where uh, the U.S., absolutely, even if they do adhere to the overt parts of this, uh, still can maintain troops in there under these different loopholes and caveats. And then the other thing that I I pointed out in the piece is that after a very long, detailed 
uh, description of the, the base infrastructure the U.S. has created in Iraq, including the embassy that's the size of the Vatican City that was just announced this January that they plan on doubling the size of that, including the bases where one of them, for example, has the busiest, single busiest airstrip of any airstrip in the entire Department of Defense system on the planet. Uh, other bases, you know, these bases averaging about 20,000 soldiers per base, which is about where we're at right now, where we have five enduring bases, approximately 20,000 20, soldiers at several of these already, while some of the smaller bases are still being broken down. And, and basically what they're talking about is they want to have a lily pad system with these bases in Iraq and other places around the Middle East where Basically, the U.S. will not maintain a military presence anywhere outside of those bases, but will be able to hop from base to base using uh, uh, aircraft, simply, uh, and then launch airstrikes from those bases, but not actually put Americans out in patrols, putting them more in harm's way, and use these bases. Uh, so sort of replicating a system as the U.S. has set up in areas like Japan, South Korea, Germany, etc. Of course, they're not facing uh, on the ground violent resistance there, but they don't really leave their bases. They're basically in these base systems, and that's what they have constructed in Iraq. So they've poured tens of billions of dollars and still are pouring money into this day into these bases uh, to augment them, to expand them, to, to increase the services they have at these bases, etc. And so at some point, someone would have to believe that the U.S. and all of its benevolent goodness as a world empire is going to turn all this base infrastructure over to the Iraqis at the end of 2011 and simply turn their backs and walk away. Um, I, I think they would need to uh, put down the bong. <laughs> That's a great way to sum that up. Dar, always a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for uh, uh, giving us uh, your views on these issues and in particular, a reality check on when and if we'll actually see all American troops out of Iraq. Great to talk with you. Dar, D-A-H-R dot org, if you'd like to get the latest. And his most recent book, The Will to Resist, Soldiers Who Refuse to Fight in Iraq and Afghanistan. Thank you very much, Dar. Thanks again, Peter. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Peter B. Collins Show. Send me your comments. Humble host at PeterBCollins.com. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling under